Hello, you're listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Trout. How many times have you had questions after the homily? How many times have you wished that Father had spoken on this topic or maybe that topic? And you thought, wouldn't it be great to just sit down with the priest and talk about those things of the day that just didn't quite make it in the homily? Well, if that's the case, then this is the podcast for you. We talk about topics ranging from literature to politics, from church teaching to church architecture. If it's relevant to Catholics, to their daily lives, to their journey to heaven, then it's on our agenda. It doesn't matter if you're a every Sunday or a Christmas and Easter or a I can't remember the last time I went to Mass Catholic. We're here and we're here for you. Father Daniel Scheid is the pastor of St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. So, Father Dan, welcome back, and thanks for joining us again. Great to be here, Chris. In our last episode, we, um, you know, we gave a spoiler alert to a degree, I guess, and we said that uh, we would be coming back with probably multiple episodes about the Senate on Senatality. And so here we are. Um, this is the uh, the first week in October, and the Senate is opened officially. And as expected, there's been much said and a great deal of news in Catholic media and in secular media. So uh, I know listeners are, uh, that are probably tracking this have questions. There's a, a lot of people who have questions. In fact, there's a pretty famous set of people who have who have five big questions that they've published and much has been said about that. So perhaps we should start discussing that a bit. You know, I, I've personally followed and tried to tried to separate, as we talked about in the last episode, what's being said versus what's being said about what's being said, because they're so different in some cases. But uh, maybe we could start by summarizing sort of this unusual word dubia and the the cardinals who have posed these questions to the Holy Father about the Synod and, and try to put some context around that. So, Chris, you bring up... Uh a Catholic vocabulary word that might not be familiar to many of our listeners. Uh, dubia is the plural of the Latin word dubium, meaning doubt. So in English, we would get the word dubious, uh. meaning not worthy of full credibility. But it's a technical term that is posed in a formal way to those with shepherding authority. So, for example, uh, to the Pope, uh, or those the Pope uh, delegate delegates to help clarify uh, what's called the deposit of faith, the great perennial living tradition of the church as it regards faith and morals given to us by, by Christ himself, bringing to fulfillment the promises of the covenants of old. So a dubium is a, a question for clarification that is submitted to the shepherding authority of the church to get further clarification. And there are so many things that need to be said, even in a preliminary way about this. So let me just dive in. The, the first is that our faith isn't actually built on a collection of dubia, <laughs> a collection of questions that we're seeking clarification on. Although, although if 
if we look closely in the gospels, Jesus's apostles are regularly <laughs> asking him questions like, Lord, uh, do you want us to call down fire to the, the Samaritan village that didn't welcome you? And <laughs> Jesus says no and rebukes them. Or Lord, how many times do I need to forgive? Seven times? Jesus clarifies, no, Peter, 70 times seven. Or Thomas responding to Jesus's teaching that that he's he's going he's going to go away and going to prepare a place for them and Thomas just blurts out lord we don't know where you're going how can we know the way and then Jesus has to clarify i am the way i am the truth i am the life so in one sense the life of faith is always going to be lived uh, experientially in this back and forth of of faith-seeking understanding. But it's, it's really important for us to know that our life of faith is actually not founded on a question mark. Mm. It's, it's founded on a big exclamation point. And the exclamation point is, I have seen the Lord. Uh, the the explanation, explanation point is, um, be it done unto me according to thy word. So faith is, is the power of entrusting oneself to what Jesus sees. And so that, that would be foundational for our understanding of the synod. We really have to entrust ourselves to what Jesus sees. And he, he sees quite a lot. He's actually omniscient. He's God <laughs> in our flesh, which means that he surveys the whole history of salvation and and he makes it known to us um, so that, I, I guess, the second clarification I would offer of the, of the, the so-called dubia, the questions in need of clarification, is that the Pope is not a kind of oracle on a tripod. So in the, in the pagan world, people would go to certain cities like uh, Delphi, there would be the, the oracle of Delphi and the the oracle would sit on, on the tripod, on the, the, the seat, and, uh, and give the definitive answers to the curious questions. And everything hinged on what was going to come out of the oracle's mouth next. And in this culture of media saturation in which the possibilities of asking all sorts of questions in all sorts of different contexts and having all sorts of different expectations of what kind of response uh, we want. And then the, the capacity of all sorts of other uh, news outlets, for example, uh, or cultural commentators to comment on, on what was said, it really can have the net effect of of being a continuation of the Tower of Babel. Mm. Uh, and rather than clarifying questions, um, multiplying them in, in profoundly unhelpful ways. So when Christ gave Peter as, as part of the, uh, the college of apostles, when he, when he gave Peter a special responsibility for confirming the brethren and in the, the history of the church, when when Peter has been 
brought in to, to clarify matters in the life of the church, it's actually been more of a, a modest, uh, conservative clarification. And by conservative, I don't mean politically conservative. I mean a clarification that actually points to a deeper and deeper appropriation of what Christ has already given. So with the death of the last apostle, we, we await no new revelation. It's all uh, a development of, of what was given in seed form. And for development to be authentic, first of all, it has to have evangelical fruitfulness, but even more fundamentally, uh, it also has to have an organic continuity with, with what has come before. In other words, the, the acorn, as it becomes the oak tree, the acorn is expressing itself. It's, it's actually not turning into an automobile. And, and perhaps I'm being a little too uh, obscure with that <laughs> strange reference, uh, an automobile, uh, literally a self-mover. Um, the purpose of the shepherds clarifying teachings and faith and morals isn't so that we can have more expressive individualism. <laughs> it's not so that we can just get more of what we want. It's actually so that we can follow Christ more faithfully, uh, more fully, and that we can be more and more converted to 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 the life of Christ as as He's given it to us. So I I realize that's a lot, but in one sense, uh, we haven't been invited inside the synod hall, and so it would be inappropriate this early on to uh, to comment on oh, what do you think people are saying? And uh, I I actually think when Pope Francis asks for our prayers. When he tells us that this is at the service of, of evangelization of more and more people uh, knowing and loving Jesus uh, from the heart of the church, we, we have to take that seriously because that is the great commission. Um, so to the extent that the synod is serving the great commission, so at the end of St. Matthew's gospel, what does Jesus say? All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go uh, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and know that I'm with you always till the end of the age. That will always be the measuring, uh, the measuring rod for any gathering of bishops or of a, a mixture of the, the bishops, the lay faithful, it always has to come from and return to the, the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Well, as we think about dubia or questions or seeking clarification, you point out that the apostles needed a lot of clarification. Maybe it's worth, maybe it's worth asking the question, is it okay to have questions? I know listeners, all of the faithful, sometimes we struggle. We struggle with church teaching. Um, and so is there anything fundamentally 
I guess I would say wrong or disordered about these shepherds asking questions, asking for clarification. The church is always going to be sent to the world from the fullness of what Christ has given. He sends his first followers um, as he sends us from town to town, village to village, person to person. And we can also trust that the Holy Spirit has blessed in advance these, these encounters and life will always involve questions. But as St. John Henry Newman said, 10,000 difficulties don't equal one doubt. And Pope Benedict, before he became Pope, was once famously asked by a German journalist, Peter Seewald, uh, does the Pope ever doubt? Ah, uh, yes. Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger answered, well, if by doubt you mean uh, willful, deliberate disbelief, no. But does the Pope suffer under the questions that make faith difficult? Yes. So in answer to your question, um, do we have permission to suffer under the questions that make faith difficult? <laughs> yes, we do. Because reality reality is complex. However, reality has a face and Jesus Christ is the face of God. And when we make our own the prayer of the psalmist, let the light of your face shine in us, O Lord, that we might be saved. When we look when we look to the face of Christ and, and bring our questions to him, that's when things get illumined. And I, I have to say two big observations. One, I am amazed that in my past year or two of priesthood, how many people have listened to Father Michael Schmitz's uh, podcast on the Bible in a year, and now the catechism sure. in a year. And when I ask myself, why, why is that so popular? I have to come to the conclusion because it's speaking to the desires of lots and lots of people's hearts. You might say it speaks to the questions that they carry. So for example, the catechism begins with, you know, the, the, the wise and loving plan of God. But, but within that, there's, there's this human desire, this wanting to know the truth. And, and so it's, it's less the question of solving a problem um, as it is entering a mystery that engages uh, the complexity of our life and, and helps us take the next steps of faith. The reason I, I'm so intrigued uh, by this is that for example, Father Michael Schmitz wasn't invited to the Synod on Synodality. Now, obviously, nobody consults me about the invitation list, uh, <laughs> and that doesn't bother me at all. But it begs the larger question, if, if we really want to reach the widest number of people, including the people who are just beyond the visible boundaries of the church, it would seem that somebody like... Uh, Father Michael Schmitz and what he did in the, the podcast deserves to be deeply studied and actually replicated. Mm. Like it, it's not rocket science. But he's so clearly connected. I know, but, but the, the amazing thing is that he didn't set out to become some kind of Catholic rock star. Sure. He didn't set out to become 
a kind of Catholic sheen, uh, Archbishop sheen of the, <laughs> the third millennium. He just thought that presenting the whole biblical sweep of revelation is, is corresponding both to the heart of God and to the heart of the people he's created. And, and by doing the follow-up on the catechism, you know, people actually have a right as well as a need to, to know the fullness of Catholic truth in a, in a straightforward way without being embarrassed about it, without trying to rewrite it. And that actually needs to be studied. Mm. Now, the second observation, it, it's related, is I've, I've actually been fascinated at the possibility of inviting recent converts <laughs> to a gathering. Like, can you imagine, I know, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself and you know, plot a future synod, but the synod on conversion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, rather than um, a, a synod on synodality, uh, talking about walking together while we walk together, let's actually study the lives of the people who have come home to the Catholic church, who have found their home who can actually give an account of what Jesus Christ risen from the dead has done in their lives and, and how, how they see the world differently. I, I actually think converts, you know, every cradle Catholic knows this and I'm a, I am a cradle Catholic. <laughs> every cradle Catholic knows that the church lives on converts I'm I'm looking at one on this podcast, <laughs> Doctor Christopher Stroud. You know, I'm but, laughingly remembering my my father-in-law, cradle Catholic, who, when I was coming into the church, used to say, "God save us from converts." <laughs> you know, um, well, look, yeah, there is a fire, though. There's a passion. Yes, um, and I would say also coupled with that passion is often a deeper study of what the Catholic Church actually teaches, and some of the scandal that people who enter the Catholic church experience on the way or, you know, after they're baptized or confirmed is how ignorant cradle Catholics are of what the church teaches and, and the richness of, of the church's tradition. And, and that gets us to the question of the ongoing conversion uh, for all of us within the church. Um, it's not like one just arrives and, and it's over discipleship by definition is training. It's allowing ourselves to be trained more and more deeply in, in the truth of Christ. And it, it would just fascinate me to gather 400 some converts and <laughs> we don't have to pick just the, the ripest of them, um, the newest of them. It, but what would it mean to invite people who have come into the Catholic church five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and to actually receive their testimony. And I, I can't help but think that that's how, that's how the early church spread by that evangelical witness that essentially, you know, I once was lost and now I'm found was blind, but now I see. And whether it's Peter 
giving his Easter witness, you know, after his failure, his denying of the Lord, whether it's Paul going across the Mediterranean world, having been knocked to the ground and his eyes being opened, uh, bringing the gospel to the the non-Jewish people, it would seem that the church would actually be doing a very loving thing for the world by studying how those people most intimately affected in our time by the, the person of Christ and the power of his spirit, what, what they're doing. And, and, and I don't always want to return to the more famous converts like Scott Hahn, but I, I, I do have to ask the question, given the evangelical fruitfulness of Scott Hahn's biblical research is his popularizing of the sacred page so that ordinary people can understand it is his wholehearted embrace of just the fullness of the great Catholic tradition. I just find it puzzling that figures like that in some circles of the church continue to be marginalized. (laughs) In other words, well, okay. Uh, it's it's all right that he's on board, but it's, a it's actually different, different different class. It's actually he, uh, along with the network of friends that that he's formed, and I think of somebody like Professor John Bergsma, a friend of mine. Um, they've actually systematically attempted to pass on the riches of Catholic scriptural tradition to several generations of English speaking Catholics. And, and that actually needs to be taken seriously. Well, as we think about, I'm thinking about converts and maybe the connection to some of the angst and uncertainty around the synod, but you know, I could imagine it. And maybe I experienced this a bit too. Converts said, tell me about the church. What does she teach? And someone said, this is the church. This is what she teaches. And then you could imagine that body of people being anxious if it's being said, well, that might change. Right. <laughs> because they signed up for something and now they don't want to feel like, well, maybe, maybe I misunderstood. Yeah, nobody's going to give themselves to a question mark. Right. It's not worth dying for a question mark. Yeah. Uh, you can't order your life around a question mark. So... I think that, for example, uh, St. John Paul II and Pope Benedict in his role uh, working with John Paul on the Catechism of the Catholic Church have done the church a great service in providing a reference point like, like the catechism. In our time, things have really shifted because the reference points are less and less the formal authorities and just because of the social media revolution, it, it really tends to be the, the talking heads. I mean, the, the people who can garner a following of several thousand people and it, it creates a kind of factionalism. And so if, if the humility isn't there to be referring people again and again to the, the greater tradition, it's actually not 
it's not serving the church. So, so either making somebody like Pope Francis, some, some Oracle that we hang on his every word or just rejecting that and, and just going off and doing our own thing. Both of those are, are dead ends. So, and not really Catholic. Correct. Correct. And I have to say, just on the ground level, I'm talking St. Vincent de Paul Parish, in this case, you know, September, October, in the year of our Lord, 2023. The number of non-Catholics who are just showing up at our church seeking is astonishing. And they're invited by fellow Catholics sometimes, other times they just come on their own and we need to take this very, very seriously because they are not looking for worldliness. They're not looking for their feelings uh, to be overindulged and, and to have a, a whole easier religion built around what some people have called therapeutic individualism, just kind of the endless um, accommodation of oneself to, to people's emotional fragility. They're actually looking for somebody to love them even more deeply and to accompany them into a greater strength. And it's, it's not proselytizing. It's a friendship that is truly liberating. And I think some of the frustration around the, the synod is that other Christian groups that have gone the route of uh, just kind of endless committee consultations. So one thinks of the Anglicans, one thinks of uh, the Methodists. Sure. And, and just, just to take those two groups of Christians, which would claim to have some type of Episcopal structure. It's true. The the Catholic church wouldn't recognize the validity of those Episcopal orders, but I'm just saying that on their terms, they would aspire to have some type of back and forth relation between people they would consider their shepherds and people who are considered members of the flock. Um, that synodal model as it's been lived, for example, in Anglicanism and Methodism, is disintegrating before our eyes. And we have to assume that there was tremendous goodwill, all sorts of theological research. Like we can't attribute any bad motives to our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, in those those groups of Christians. Yet the outcome appears clear. The outcome is crystal clear. And when one looks at the German synodal way, the church in Germany is hemorrhaging membership and it's dying. And there are other places in Europe that have experimented with clericalizing the laity and laicizing the clergy, like the Netherlands, where the faith has virtually disappeared. There are small, small pockets of it. And so to think that this is our future sitting around tables, uh, looking at screens, more and more talking. It actually needs to turn to the people who 
are coming uh, seeking more than just having their um, what's been given to them in the secular culture uh, validated. Well, it's been said, and maybe this is true of of your formation and priesthood that part of the reason St. John Paul connected so amazingly was his ability to somehow just speak the truth in a kind and a compassionate way, but he never watered it down. Right. And young people just flocked to him because of that. And we're still feeling the fruits of that. Yes. Of that work. Yes. Yes. And, um, you know, the way of charity the Via Caritatis has to pass by way necessarily of the Via Crucis, the way of the cross. And I, I actually think that what was so persuasive about John Paul II was that he suffered the difficult questions uh, deeply and, and he offered more than what the world could offer. I always get very, very nervous when um, the secular media praises um, <laughs> any figure in the church overly much. Um, you know, I, I suppose, you know, on the rare occasion when, you know, the Nobel committee awards the the peace prize to mother Teresa, you know, for a, a brief moment, that's okay. Uh, church and world can, can sing as one, but, but ordinarily the church has to remain herself precisely to liberate the lives of, of those who are seeking to know and love Christ and, and who need, who need conversion and, and who need salvation from sin and who need real participation in the divine life, which, which is so far removed from the church being some kind of non-government organization, but, but rather the, um, the, the body of Christ, the membership well, if we, in him. perhaps we could uh, take just one, one uh, bite of the synod sandwich and look at the, if we think about these questions that have been posed um, by these five very prominent cardinals representing kind of the corners of the world. The first one was really about sort of a fundamental question about doctrine. Could you maybe explain sort of the question and and perhaps the the answer. Yes. So the question had essentially uh, to do with the permanence of uh, what is given, uh, what is revealed by Christ, and that that can involve, uh, for example, the the hierarchical structure of the church. Just to take one one dimension of the church, so that Christ establishes bishops, priests, deacons, that that ordained structure as it developed from the beginning in the church is, is willed by God. And one simply can't uh, renegotiate that on other terms uh, at this late hour. Sure. And so, you know, there were, are some people going into the synod thinking that women admitted to priestly ordination, for example, is a possibility. Like a change. Um, yeah. It's not. Um, <laughs> and I would also add, because of the teaching of the church, the perennial teaching of the church, of the unity of the episcopacy, the presbyteral order and the diaconal order, that the admission of women 
to the diaconate is also a theological impossibility. So the fact that the synod discussion um, in certain areas of the church is so dominated by these these questions, it actually shows a lack of health and in a real need for for clarification. I mean, maybe in a future episode of this podcast, we can go through, you know, the different uh, dubia, the different, the five uh, questions for clarification that were presented. Uh, for now, you know, just by way of, of conclusion, I have followed uh, rather closely the different articles in Catholic World Report on the Synod, uh, also in the journal First Things, and found them to be faithful to the great, the great tradition. So we can also talk more about that in a sure. future podcast about how, how ordinary people can stay informed <laughs> in a way that isn't simply led by the nose by the secular media, but yet also doesn't get stuck in the cul-de-sacs of the individual church personalities who are, whether they're trying to be more Catholic than the Pope or (laughs) whether they're, you know, they think they're the great agents of change. Um, But for clarity for Catholic and non-Catholic listeners, um, you used ordination of women, but as another example, I think what we're saying is there can't be an announcement tomorrow that we've rethought virgin birth and it, right. it's, it's no longer a thing yeah. or perpetual virginity and, is no and longer. Here, here I have to say um, deep, deep humility is required about what any gathering, <laughs> any <laughs> gathering of people, whether, whether they be bishops or combination of bishops and lay people, there has to be great humility about what can actually be determined by this. So, you know, it's always good to listen, uh, uh, you know, uh, two ears, one mouth, as they say, but ultimately we're listening to the person of Christ and he's going to be sending us to more and more people who actually need to hear proclaimed uh, this good news that, that he's savior Lord and he's alive and he's come that we might have life and have it in abundance. That that's the reason for any gathering of Christians. And it's why Jesus can say wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. So we'll pray that Jesus's uh, presence at the synod will be a blessing for the church and will scatter error and confusion. Uh, That's my prayer. Father Dan, thank you uh, again for another episode. Thank you for this discussion of these uh, important topics. That seems like a good place to leave it for this episode. Uh, Listeners, as promised, we'll be back with more episodes dedicated uh, to the Synod and all things uh, Synod. We'll probably have some time to look specifically at at those five questions in detail and uh, more specifically at the Holy Father's responses Uh, to some of those questions. And of course, uh, any other topics that arise as we go through this uh, really interesting process. I think, Father Dan, uh, you said it best when we said, we know who's in charge here. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. We know how this story ends. We just don't know how we get to the ending 
of the story. Uh, so there is no reason to despair, only reason uh, to remain hopeful always in, in the faith that sustains us. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode of After the Homily as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. And I hope you'll plan to join us regularly for future episodes. Are there topics that you'd like to hear Father Dan speak about? Do you have questions that you'd like answered? If so, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at church at saintv.org and type After the Homily in the subject line, or you can message me directly at 260 260- Four five zero eight eight seven eight, and please start the message with after the homily. And a special thanks goes to our friends at Redeemer Radio and Spoke Street Media for producing this podcast. It simply wouldn't be possible without them. You can enjoy an endless variety of really remarkable Catholic content by visiting SpokeStreet.com. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud, and thanks again for listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.